From ThatShelf.com, this is Black Hole Films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What's a black hole film, you ask? Well, you know those films you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did for whatever reason? Well, that's what they are. And this podcast is all about embracing them and checking those films off our lists and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm Canadian filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate, review it, and leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening. It really does make a difference in helping to get more ears tuning in. And if you like this show, check out the others on the ThatShelf.com family of podcasts. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 220, and today I'm joined by Justin McConnell. Justin's latest film, The Clapboard Jungle, is available on Hoopla and Super Channel if you're a subscriber. Otherwise, you can rent it on Apple TV. And we're going to sit down and watch a film together. So we're sitting down uh, vicariously through, uh, through Zoom to watch The Southland Tales, The Con's Cut. Con yes. Cut. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, oh my God, who's oh, calling okay. me? We'll be restarting this. One. <laughs> Look at this. I'll have to deal with that later. Uh, I'll restart. Okay. So we're sitting down vicariously through Zoom to watch the Southland Tales: The Con Cut. I'm Jeremy, and I have not seen any cut of this film ever. I'm Justin McConnell, uh, I guess your guest for the week, and um, it, I have actually seen both cuts of the film, but it's kind of one of those movies where you could watch it multiple times, I think, and, and still pick up new things. So to me, it's it's still a black hole because th- there's themes and things I'm missing and all these like individual things. I also thought this is great timing because you and I both have friends in France right now at probably one of the strangest and most surreal in-person con in history with all the COVID testing and all the, like the distancing and like the daily spitting into tubes thing that they're doing. I haven't uh, heard about the spitting into tubes. So that's... Oh yeah. They're doing, I think Jason gorber has got to do like a test every day. Um, well, he's there, even though he's double vaccinated, but, uh, but it's, it, it's, it's fitting because this is the, one of the most notorious con premieres in history. Uh, it was booed out of the theater badly. Uh, the cut we're about to watch. Um, and well, I guess we'll talk about that when we get when we come back <laughs> and see see where 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 we lay on that uh, on that spectrum of enjoyment. Yeah, I don't know. Like, see, I don't know much about this film. I know like who the filmmaker is, obviously. Um, but it's one of those films that I remember when it came out. All I remember was that I was like, oh, I, I should check that out because I liked his last film. Uh, but then also I remember hearing just like such mixed things, like from, you know, the con cut getting booed. And then when it came out, I just didn't race to the theater for it. Cause I'd heard such mixed things and I just never got around to watching it. I did see the theatrical cut in theaters on opening weekend. So <laughs> I, it's, it's messy. I, the theatrical cut is definitely, they're both messy. Uh, I think uh, again, I, it's one of those things where I think one watching you, you're either keyed into it or not and right on the second watch you pick up on other things and go oh, okay no it's not messy i just missed this now, there I, I, anyway that's where i think i'm gonna lay on this uh this one and uh we'll see how it goes nice well uh i, I i'm very fortunate i got my a, a screening copy through the, the our wonderful friends at unobstructed view uh because they put out the the special edition aero disc i guess that has both of these cuts so uh, that's my little plug for unobstructed, <laughs> unobstructed view. Not that I need to plug an arrow video, an arrow video, yeah, because they're they're my my favorite Canadian distributor of of physical media, keeping it alive for all of us. All right, so uh, so I guess because I, I don't know, I mean, I know like some of the cast, I know like things about it, but I don't know anything about it. I, I think the only thing I know is that there's a tie-in to a comic book, but I think that was after. Like, this isn't, there's, this is an original piece, right? This is an original piece. Uh, it, it, the comic book side is new to me. I didn't know there was a comic book. It probably oh. came afterwards. Uh, this, is, this is an original script. Uh, I know a bit of, a, of the development background. Um, obviously, Richard Kelly got big off of Donnie Darko, and he wrote Domino for Tony Scott. And this was a film that uh, 
he had a pretty decent budget for um, out of the gate, and uh, they just kind of let him go and make the movie he wanted to make. And um, and then all the problems hit once it premiered and, and people started seeing it. Uh, I think it's ahead of his time, personally, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> so the... Um... So just to give you a history of the, the, the graphic novels, I just pulled it up. Mm-hmm. So the Southland Tales, the prequel saga, is a collection of three graphic novels produced to accompany the film. The graphic novels were written by Richard Kelly and illustrated, and illustrated by somebody else, obviously. Uh, they're designed to be like the first half of the story, and the movie is the second half. Oh, wow. That, that, that may fill in some of the blanks, I think, if I get a chance to read that. I wonder if it's in the the actual arrow release I have here. I'm going to have to check it while I'm watching the movie because there's a booklet. Maybe it's got stuff from the. Yeah. There is is three pretty, I'd be surprised because the thing is like three proper like size graphic novels. Oh yeah. Which would be like six issues worth probably five or six. Yeah. Something like that. So a fair amount of, uh, of content. I I guess it was originally planned to be a six, six graphic novels that got reduced down to three. So, uh, so does this thing have, uh, without getting any spoilers, but does this thing have like a significant like cult following to it? I guess it must if it's getting you know. A, um, a, a I don't decent. know how big the cult is, but I think <laughs> for any movie that uh, has a history as notorious as this, from a filmmaker as interesting as this, and a voice as original as this, uh, there's definitely a group of people that have sort of like remember it fondly and are championing it now that it's been re-released on Blu-ray. Okay. Well, I'm cult just. Cult. I'm just expecting like a delicious mess is kind of what I'm. Well, uh, I think that's a pretty good uh, expectation. I, I, I do think it's messy, but I think it's, it's also really, really uh, unique and it has a very, um, very distinct voice to it that you don't get from a lot of uh, movies you see nowadays, I'd say. Um, it's, it's very much like, uh, you know what a good analogy would be? Um, David, uh, is it David Robert Mitchell? The guy who made it follows um, David. Anyway, he uh, made a, I know the movie, but I don't. Yeah. I, I can't remember who the filmmaker. Well, is. he made another movie after it follows uh, called Oh Man, what the hell? Under the Silver Lake, which is another yeah. one of those. I don't know if you saw that one. That's another one of those sort of very auteur-driven. It's all sort of the vision of one director kind of things, and it's also messy but really fascinating on an ideas and story level and. Um, I, I would say they're kind of analogous. This and, and that film are sort of, um, I'd say they, they, they travel in the same same waters of cinema, I guess. Nice. Kindred the, spirits, as it were. Relatively pretentious way. <laughs> the, the, the same Silver Lake? Huh? Yeah. Uh? Oh, there we go. <laughs> yeah. Bring it, just bring it right back around. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's, I think that's a good place to dive in. Me, me knowing very little to nothing uh, and you being kind of like our resident expert on this, on this movie. Cool. All right. Then. Uh, all right. We'll see you shortly. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. So we just finished. Uh, I mean, I started to write down notes about things and but then i just stopped because i was like i'll just be writing nonstop. um i don't even know where to start it's uh, how to unpack this film is uh yeah i mean i guess my first question not that it matters is what's the difference between the theatrical and the cons cut just so i have a context uh well it's there's about 20 minutes of 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 overall time and a lot of it was fleshing out the neo the, the neo-marxist characters more and the um i don't remember exactly i do know that the chapter titles weren't in the theatrical cut and uh there was a lot of sort of like side story stuff that was really narrowed down so you got it, it very much focused mostly on the rock uh and sean william sean william scott's character and and that whole dynamic um, and less so on the neo-Marxists. They were there, but they weren't there quite to the level um, they are in the longer cut. I, right. I don't know. Like, it is 20 minutes of material, but I, I don't feel like it's like entire giant sections were lifted wholesale. It, it was, it was you know, a few minutes here, a few minutes there. Yeah, um, yeah. I do remember that there was a lot. Like, it... The, when I saw the con cut, the first time I saw the con cut was this year. I remember, I understood the movie a lot 
better from that cut than I did from the cut down version. Which <laughs> I, and what I, I, I that's I, saying something. <laughs> the word understand is uh, is is your mileage is definitely going to vary <laughs> like, with that, that expression, but. Um, I was able to pick more up on the, uh, the theme of it and, um, and, and sort of more, I think what EP was going for, but at the same time, it, it very much feels like the type of movie that, uh, I don't want to say Lynchian cause that's, it's such a cliche, but the kind of thing where if you asked him, he'd be like, you're right. It could be about that as opposed yeah. to I did this, you know, <laughs> that's. Um, well, and even like I was just reading some interviews with some of the cast. Like Wallace Shawn was like, "I don't understand." He says, "I've seen the movie three times. I don't get it." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Justin Timberlake said the same thing. He's like, "I narrated the thing, and I just I couldn't tell you <laughs> what it's about." <laughs> um, it's uh, but it's fascinating. Like you said, it's like it's always interesting. Yeah, no matter what's happening, it's bizarre and bonkers and weird. And the best way you can just describe it is like performance art. I think, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and and I'm sure if you like, there is meaning there. I, I do think there is meaning there. I think the move. Okay, this is just my read on it. Again, I I haven't read anything online. I'm sure there's lots of interpretations, but I think ultimately, like he made it shortly after 9/11 happened, and when. Um, you know, when the police, not the police state, but the surveillance state of the United States was spooling up with the Patriot Act and all that sort of thing. Um, but it was also right in an era, and we we're definitely talking about it right now, but the idea of having to shift away from fossil fuels and stuff like that because of climate change and all that sort of thing. Um, so the, the movie, they create this this new technology, this this perpetual motion engine that uses the sea, the sea power to power things. Um, and that march of progress to try and improve human life and try and you know make make human life self-sustaining it it just creates a whole new set of problems so it's almost like the idea that we blindly march forward uh in into discovering things and into creating industry around it without knowing the consequences of it down the road so we we like blindly walk into our own obsolescence and, and our own destruction uh our own you know just because we don't really understand the powers we're trying to harness um but beyond all that there, you know there's the, i think it's a satire on american society in a lot of ways it's um it's trying to say something about the troops coming back um and how everybody i think it's interesting how the movie they're constantly espousing Karl marx but none of them seem to remotely understand his doctrine they're all just sort of using it as a buzz right like on both sides there's the neo-marxist but then even the on the airship at the end there's the marx suite where Kevin Smith is, right? Like he's yeah. inside this thing called the Marx suite. And I think they, they, that it's the idea of political ideology as like buzzwords. It's something that- in it's, it's, a, it's a, yeah, it's the guys that wear the chase shirts, yeah. not knowing who the hell he is. Yep, yep. Uh, yeah, and and, 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 and and you know, the themes you're talking about are, are, you know, not new by any means, you know, even Jeff Goldblum, the Jurassic Park movies and world movies are about that idea of like, we had technology we didn't understand and we just went with it mm-hmm. uh, despite our. All about can, not about should. That's just it. Right. Um, uh, and fuck, I mean, the cast in this movie well, is just. They, they put Eli Roth in the movie for three seconds to shoot him on a toilet. Like there's the, there's so many blink and you miss it kind of roles. Yeah. Um, and, but then there's like, you know, Christopher Lambert and, like half of SNL's cast at the time doing really serious fucked up roles, but like, like, you know, they're all sociopaths. Sherry Terry. I was like dying. Sherry Terry killed me in this movie. Uh, (laughs) Kevin Smith is phenomenal in this movie. Yeah. He's really good. He's really good. Really good. And it took me a beat because I knew he was in the movie and it took me a beat to go, Oh, that's him. Cause even when he first came on and with all the prosthetics and makeup and whatnot, uh, he it didn't sound necessarily like he was performing in a way. It wasn't until there was a moment later on in that first scene, though, there was a bit of a, a, a Smithism, I'll call it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's why I recognize that voice. And, but uh, but everyone's kind of playing against type, I find. Like, that's just like, it. And I think has that that nervous tick he's doing all the time, and somebody clearly directed him to like you know be a bit neurodivergent or like I don't want to go down that road of trying to no. define it, but. But clearly the entire cast is is not understanding a goddamn thing they're doing, but they're totally trusting in Richard Kelly and going, just tell me what, and, and, and 
they're all delivering like fantastic performances. Mm-hmm. Like Wallace Shawn gets to like shine in a way here that he normally does not. Oh, uh, he has a makeout scene, which has got to be a first for him. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Bai Ling's character, like Bai Ling, I find uh, a very good performer, but can be hit and miss because she ends up in a lot of really, really like something where nobody knows how to use her. There's just, just like, oh, she's um, she's this type of character that she's been in everything. So they put her in that role and she just kind of sleepwalks through it because she knows she, nobody really cares, that she, you know. But uh, but in things like Crank and in this, though, she's really playing to, to I think, her actual talent. And she, yeah, I think everybody in it's pretty good. Like Sarah Michelle Gellar, uh, after watching her for seven seasons on Buffy and stuff, I know she's the furthest thing from like a, a ditzy sort of, you know, airheaded. Um, it, like it, every single every single actor in the movie is playing the opposite of what you expect. Uh, at the time, Sean William Scott had only done one dramatic role with Stark Raving Mad. Uh, yeah, but he was the he was the American Pie guy. Yeah, he was yeah, Stifler. Yeah. So everybody knew him as Stifler. Uh, you know, as and he's. He's really fucking good in this movie and in a dual role too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone, I mean, he his 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 part borders on cheesy uh, at the end, but then but yeah. even like Justin Timberlake's great. Like just the way it starts off on that. So like that machine, like he's reading the Bible mm-hmm. on some kind of a machine gun, and then he's got this creepy laugh. And as soon as, as soon as that, and then just, he's got this amazing scar on his face. It's like oh yeah. shit, yep. his. His what is I read? This is one of the few things I ended up. His I got soul like little song oh, moment in the bowling and I'm not bowling alley, but like the like the, the Chuck arcade, e, yeah. the arcade, yeah. Like again, like that. I don't know where that the point of that, but goddamn, it was enjoyable. I I think I have a handle on that scene because he takes the red right before that. You know, if you, do you bleed? He takes the neck injection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I I think that's a metaphor for what the high of that particular drug is. You know, it brings him out of his PTSD for just long enough to to because they establish he used to be famous I and mean, either as a singer or an actor or something um, in like before he went to war. So I think it brings him back to that euphoria of uh, not caring. And then, but it's such a short high that that's why at the end of the musical number, he snaps into just this serious expression while everything else is going around him as the high is falling away. Right. I, that's the way I interpret that part anyway. Um, I could be wrong. Like it could have just been like, hey, we got the license to this song and you want, and Justin Timberlake, you want to do something? But I do feel like there's something more there. Um, especially because there's, there's all... Like everybody's drinking beer, he's drinking beer. There's a party atmosphere, and, and there's all the dancing girls all around him, and that's that's such an like a, a an Americana image of, of a soldier coming home. But there's such an underlying sense of, of of it's all a lie through that whole thing until until his until his expression drops, and it's like he's staring dead into the camera, um, and and then just falls away back into. So I, yeah, I don't know. That seg- I like that segment a lot, but again, it's one of those things that's like I can see why the con audience probably, <laughs> probably were just didn't understand or didn't didn't know what to expect, and you know, all it takes is like a section of the audience to get, to really turn on a movie, and then the whole audience does in that kind of scenario. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Uh, um, I won't say that the movie was, but I had an opposite reaction at like a TIFF screening years ago where I thought, I'm like, I'm in this going, man, what a giant, I can't like, the audience is going to boo this movie and they loved it. <laughs> yeah, I was I'm like, oh, I'm in the minority here. But uh, I get, it, it's such a fascinating, like, and it's one of those things like you look at it and then, and then you look at, um, you know, his career since then. Mm-hmm. And at, like the last thing he did was that, James Marsden movie, The Box. The Box, which honestly, I, I rewatched. It takes place around Christmas, so it was part of my Christmas rewatch in 2020 because uh, I saw it in theaters as well. I really like The Box. I'll be honest. Yeah, it's a I, studio movie for really him, right? Good. Yeah, it's, it, but at the same time, it get, you still get the weird, you know, dimension-shifting, time-hopping stuff he's known for, but it's more grounded and reined in. And uh, I think it's based on a Twilight Zone. Yeah, no, it is. It's yeah. That, that, oh, yeah. But... um. But then nothing like he yeah. he's done literally. And I was trying to look it up while I was watching because um, I was so curious. Uh, and it seems like he's still trying to get stuff made or still like on the wings. Mm-hmm. But 
And I almost wonder, I'm like, did this movie destroy his career in a way that, because I'm sure he had the box lined up. Yeah. It definitely hurt his career, I think. Like, you know, some people call this like the most expensive student film of all time. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. No, I mean, that, that's, that's an unfair, but it's like at the same time, it's like, like, it's one of those things you look at and you're like, oh, nobody said no to you at any point. Like, oh, yeah. There's, there's no way you had a producer beside you going, I totally know what he's going for here. Don't worry. No, and everyone was going on with blind, blind faith. Well, his key producer, I read in, a, in an interview, uh, read the script and read, read it and was like, oh, this is a post 9 11 pulp fiction. I love this. I'm not, he's not changing a word. He's got 100% support. So, it was totally the kind of thing where they just handed him the keys and were like, where it was like, just, do your thing and uh i mean there was i know donnie darko was heavily retooled too in the edit because they're there he's got a director's cut of that too and then there's the release version i prefer the release version of that movie they're both they're both good but um pacing wise the release version is the one that i i really really enjoyed because the first it's the first one i saw it's the one that really warmed me up to his stuff um and this is the opposite well and this is the opposite his vision is the one that I, i ended up liking the most but it also was like a 15 year gap between when I saw the theatrical version and when I saw the con, the, you know, the, um, the famous con cut that was floating around on like file trading groups for years. And I never bothered because I didn't want to watch some low quality rip of something. Um, so it's great to finally see it on the Arrow Blu-ray uh, in really high quality. Although the effects, uh, from what I understand, one big difference is, is that Sony didn't give him very much money to finish the VFX. So uh, he had like, yeah. He didn't get Zack Snyder money to go back no. in and read. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, so apparently there were like interns and volunteers and stuff like that. So obviously there's some dodgy stuff there from time to time. But uh, I would say I put it in the same category as like Twin Peaks season three, where you've got the those blender like effects. Did you see the newest season of Twin Peaks? No. Oh, okay. Well, there's some. No, I, I wasn't a Twin Peaks person, so I was like, oh. I haven't seen the. I've only seen the pilot. Um, oh, really? Wow. But I've, it's one of those my my big black holes that I go, I go back and redo. There's a great box set, pretty cheap. Ah, I, I definitely noticed some really bad green screen in this movie, yeah. And, yeah. And where it's just like, ooh, it's. Uh, but this, so that makes sense. Where mm-hmm. uh, where they're finishing this out of out of a labor of love. Yeah, it definitely it definitely shows. But at the same time, the analogy I was making to Twin Peaks is Twin Peaks season three doesn't have a lot of budget either, but. Lynch had these ideas that he couldn't pull off without doing some sort of a after effects or visual palette of some kind, you know, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, composite. Like, yeah, well, re- let's just say comp- yeah, comp- composite composition. I was thinking more of an art term, like a, like a collage uh, right. kind of thing, um, done digitally. And it doesn't look great, but the idea behind it, you're able to like buy into it because you're like, okay, I see what you're trying to do. I know you didn't have the money. Um, I'm okay with that because you're trying to create this, this, this impressionistic art as opposed to like doing kaleidoscopic something. kind of thing or. Well, no, it's, it's just, it's a, in the, in 20 season three, it's a representation of, of some otherworldly dimension. So it's, it's not meant to be something evocative of reality anyway. Um, right. So I can accept the idea of cheaper effects to evoke an idea, uh, if the idea that's being evoked is something that that is you know new or supports the story. So I'm okay with you know seeing the edges on on some bad green screen and some places and stuff like that. Um, but uh, yeah, it didn't really take me out of it knowing knowing what I know about the movie. I can definitely see other people watching and going, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> At times. Um, especially like the dance number at the end and, and it, it evokes uh, a mood, but it's like, what, what's going on? What's happening? <laughs> Why are they, you know, how did this get arranged? And, and I think once you start overanalyzing something like this, I mean, you can overanalyze it till, till the end of the earth to try and quite figure out, you know, your own interpretation of something. But um, I think it's also a mood piece. You can just kind of go along for the ride. This, I'm, I can see this being a good drug film. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, it, it, I mean, you, it, it wouldn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly would. Uh, uh, it definitely requires. It's just the kind of film that it definitely. I, I remember the first time I watched uh, Mulholland Drive, like the next mm-hmm. morning, 
I spent the whole morning in my like then apartment with cue cards and I kind of cracked the code of it. Well, cause I was just like, cause I walked away co- going, you know, I had two films on, you know, one, one friend that was very Lynchian based and one that was like was stupid and bullshit. And if I have to think about it, it doesn't make it, it means it's a bad movie. And I was like, and I, and I, you know, to be fair, I normally live somewhere between those two things. Well, I remember when we watched Possession. I, remember, I fully remember that. <laughs> yeah. And and for me, it was just like, Mulholland Drive, though, made sense to me in my brain. I'm like, the pieces are all there. I know they're there. I just need to, like, do it. And I kind of, like, sketched it out. If, and, and we actually did that episode on the podcast. Uh, and, and I do give my, like, full interpretation of that movie, if you're ever... For those listening, if you were curious, my breakdown of Mulholland Drive, because I love that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not like, I, I fall somewhere in between. I'm very hit or miss when it comes to movies like this. Uh, it, it, it might just be catching me in the right mood because I'll yeah. either like just be like, Meh, no, I become a cranky old man who's like, give me plot and arcs. Uh, but for this one, like, there's definitely craft there. Like, like I said, all the performances are, you're getting. You know, he he went out of his way to cast actors against type and and, and give them something interesting and unique to do. And oh, and John Lovitz. When do, when do you see John Lovitz play a role like that? <laughs> Ever? But even just that that scene with um oh god, what's your name? Uh, Leslie Nope. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. With the put on the fake noses and the fake um, nose and yeah, just yeah, every yeah. little thing. It's just like nobody said no at any point. There's no there's no no men. It was all like, <laughs> no. As I like to say. Uh, when when things go disastrous, my own movie making, I'm like, there was no adult on set. Like people just <laughs> let us do things. Like we, I, you know, on a, a movie I made recently, we we down we drowned a, a a very expensive camera in a river, and I was like, there's no adult on set to kind of go. This is the this is maybe not the best idea what we did here. Um, and luckily, things like insurance exist. But I look at this movie and I'm like, like you said, it's like the producer read the script. Love Donnie Darko and was just like, you know what? Go for it. Yeah. No, nobody's ever there was no and Wallace Shawn is by and the rock is like going for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess this is his first film where he's not the rock, right? He's Dwayne. was it the first one he was credited as Dwayne Johnson? Because before yeah. this was this is 2006, so he would have made the rundown by that at that point, which he was called Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Um I think this one was the one where he totally lost the rock. Oh really? This is yeah. the first one. Okay. That makes sense. Which makes sense because it was like yeah. he was you know well, as he is, yeah, he's completely against what you'd expect. But it's interesting funny just watching him too now. It's like I mean the dude is in shape in this movie, but I'm like, you get more ripped after this. Like you look like yeah. a more regular looking person who is still is in insanely good shape. <laughs> I think he picked much more interesting roles in his early career than he does now uh for the most part but i i think that's a, that might just be a paycheck and a personality like oh he's just part of he's got that. a brand now so he's part of the machine he's probably brand machinery but it's just like he's just doing massive franchise stuff mm-hmm. you know uh that said uh you know he's the kind of guy that if he ever wanted to do anything like this again he'd just do it he'd do whatever he wants yeah you know nobody's gonna tell Dwayne Johnson what to do yeah Exactly. Yeah. I wonder if he would do a film like this again, though. Like I, because he did a lot of kind of kind of cool stuff in the first, like say, ten years of him doing like Gridiron Gang is is not a, necessarily a typical role. I mean, he's playing a football coach, but it depends uh, on what his reps are like. Because I think it's the kind of situation where who knows if interesting stuff like this even gets to him, you know, or, or, if, it, or yeah, if it just, well, it, it, it's yeah. harder to get made anymore. But it's mm-hmm. like it, it gets shut down at you know reader stage. reader stage, where it's like nobody even passes it along to him because his reps don't want him to do it. Mm-hmm. Where if it was the kind of situation like if someone like whoever I don't know what their relationship was like after this, but if Richard Kelly called up The Rock and had something cool, you know he, that's the it kind might of happen. Yeah, it's possible. It, it could get made like that. You know, because as long as The Rock signs on to do it and Richard E. Kelly agrees to a certain budget, I'm sure they'll let him just do whatever with, you know, because... You think a director like Richard Kelly, uh, the reason he hasn't done the amount of work he's doing is because he's got such a particular sort of vision. I mean, I don't want to speak for anybody, but um, in the machinery of the current business, like they want you to do established on bigger budgets. They want you to do established IPs. Uh, there's not a lot of room for like 
the the auteur kind of approach to making the movie so anymore. There's always going to be people in the, in the director's ear going, okay, well, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. Um, is that particular environment, does that just not work for him? Or is it because he could make much smaller movies if he wanted? Um, I think so. But just reading like that really brief interview I was reading that was only from last year, like he talks about how he's, you know, he's got like 10 different projects on the go that in writing stages that he's working on, but then he gets bored of one and moves back. I think he's just the kind of guy that likes to gestate as long as he can on something. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also like he talks about the scope of, you know, the kind of projects he wants to do and they're not making those kind of movies. You know, he himself is living, you know, poverty stricken to some extent, which I can't imagine why, how, how else he's making money. Like, mm-hmm. you know, as much as Donnie Darko did well, it's like that, that was, you know, 20 years ago now. So it's like that was, those things don't pay forever. Yeah. And I couldn't imagine the profit participation would be very high anyway. No, and I think he probably does a bunch of. I bet you he's a big. He does a bunch of uh, ghostwriting. You know, mm-hmm. he wrote um, Domino, the yeah, Tony Scott Domino movie. So I'm I'm sure he's doing a bunch of uh, uncredited script work. That yeah, polish and 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 yeah, I can definitely. That but way. I wonder, like, you look at him because because what's kind of happened to like the middle ground movies that we mm-hmm. all loved from like the you know the '90s and the early aughts. Um, you know, they're all on television now, right? Yeah, they're all streaming. So it's, like, so it's surprising to me that we haven't seen or heard of like a Richard Kelly, you know, anthology series or mini series or something like that. Because I think that's the kind of thing that he would probably be best fit for in today's environment. Mm-hmm. You know, give the guy you know, $10 million to do a season of whatever he wants to do. Oh, geez. Stars gave Greg Araki a TV series. Like if that, if, if that had happened, if, if like a, as niche director as Greg Araki can get a, like a full on TV series, I'm sure Richard Kelly can get something too. Like, uh, I just, I can't imagine it's been so long since the box at this point. I'm just, I'm curious to see, I'd love to see something new. It's also one of those things where it's like the, I'm sure the pressure of like the longer away he is from having made something, the more the pressure is to make something really stellar. Yeah. And that's never a great environment to create within when you've got like these undue pressures on top of you. And I don't know. The moment it gets announced, people are going to be like, Oh, the Donnie Darko director is back. You know, it's it's like, and it's just going to be talked about until it releases. So that's a whole, yeah. Yeah, and the internet now, like everything is under such a microscope. You'd almost like he'd almost have to create something in complete secrecy. And then uh, just get it released. Like, and then it's just ready to go, yeah. as opposed to any kind of build up. So that way there isn't almost any way for like the hype machine to take place. And that's one thing I really kind of enjoyed during the pandemic, uh in music anyway, was like watching just you know, bands and artists I really dig just drop albums that with no warning, like Weezer put out two albums this year that were some of the best work they'd done in years, you know, and, and say what you will about her either way. Like Taylor Swift dropped like two, like what I thought were pretty strong albums and really interesting albums, given that she can do whatever the fuck she wants now too. You know, they, they you know, both very different artists from very, very different periods and genres, but like just putting out really spectacular work with no warning. Yeah. yeah. You know, no lead up, no expectations, just going, here it is, you know, enjoy. And so people could just like, as opposed to going, what do you think it's going to be like? And what do you, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. the title is this, what do you think that means? Uh, there was just like, oh, it's here. I can actually just enjoy and absorb it as opposed to getting in my own head. And I wonder if that's just not like, uh, you know, it's hard to do that with movies because um, the budget's, you know, go up and there's so much a PR machine too, but there is something like really, I think rewarding from an artist's point of view to just go, I'm not going to allow any kind of hype machine. People are just going to, the only thing they're going to be able to judge the work on is the work. And here it is. And, it, and there you go. And that, there was something with that, that I thought was really kind of ballsy and awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, su- I suppose the rationale against that would be that, you know, if, without the hype machine, how are people going to discover it? And then things have such a short shelf life now, especially on streaming platforms. It's like, well, what if you're in the public consciousness for five days, what does that mean to the bottom line? You know? <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, and to be fair, it's like, you know, someone like Taylor Swift or a band like Weezer can get away with it because word of mouth will just spread. Right. Yeah. Uh, 
and so it's fine for them. So a movie is a different kind of thing. To just drop a movie like you would drop an album on Spotify is a is a, a challenging thing unless it's so low budget that you you need very little for it to to make any kind of. Well, return. it's like when they dumped uh, the Cloverfield Paradox right after the Super Bowl on Netflix that one that I don't know four or five years ago or whatever it was like the new Cloverfield movie's out. What the fuck? Uh, but it wasn't really. It was you know sort of I don't know. It very much seemed like a studio dump for them, but yeah. But still. I do think I do think word of mouth like kicks in though, right? On something really good like um, Bo Burnham's. Uh, oh yeah, that just became that blew up because of the word of mouth, right? That that's it, right? Like it, you know. I I I don't remember, and I watched his other his other specials, but I don't remember not any. As good. No, no, this was like yeah. They're they're always interesting, but this was like night and day, you know. Um, but but in particular, like I don't remember any kind of lead up to that at all, or any kind of message going, "Hey, I'm, this thing is coming out next week." A trailer. It was just there, just there and, yeah. and everyone was talking about it for you know probably a short amount of time. But well, they're still like, talking about it now. It's I'm just constantly seeing talking about it. On yeah, people are just starting to discover it. Yeah, like yeah. so far into 2021, it's probably my favorite thing I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and something I haven't actually gone back to rewatch since the first time I watched it, but I, I constantly think about a lot of the pieces that were in it. It, it stuck with me more than anything I've seen uh, in, in quite some time. Well, especially knowing like how it was produced and uh, and the amount of ingenuity of this to like be a one man show and shoot it and, you know, visually design it in such a way and then make something cohesive out of it. I mean, I shot a, I self shot a short film where I was in my apartment last year when I was in lockdown, like a five minute short. It took me three days to make, and uh, I, I thought it turned out pretty nicely. But the idea of doing like an hour and ten minute special over a period of a year or so is just like, it's a lot of lateral thinking that I, I it, it just seems like when it's done, it's like, oh, that's easy. No, it's not. It's not fucking easy at all. Like it, you know, it's so much work that has to go into it and like uh, problem solving and R and D and like, okay, how do I make this shot work when I am no camera operator? What can I buy to, you know, like, and just editorially too. It's like, the nice thing is like, because, and, and, and also kind of the beauty, I think also with a piece like that in particular is that no one knew he was working on it. So mm-hmm. he could have just not ever released it or shown it to anybody if he didn't want to, it was kind of like a perfect scenario where, there was no pressure to create. Mm-hmm. No one was expecting anything. It didn't really cost him anything other than his own time and probably maybe some extra equipment, gear. some yeah. gear that, but I bet you a lot of it he already had, mm-hmm. you know? So uh, it's the kind of thing where it's just like, it's, a, it's, it's, you know, to the opposite of what we were talking with Richard Kelly, it's the perfect environment within to create because you have like so much room for failure uh, and, and it's fine. Um, and so, so it just allows you to just be completely free and open, uh, and bold and brave and just like creative. And, you know, I, I can't speak highly enough for, so if, if, for those listening, if you haven't seen Bo, Bo Burnham's new special, it's on Netflix. Uh, and it's, you know, pretty it's, incredible. It, it's pretty, I, I defy anyone to like watch it for 10 minutes and be able to turn it off. Well, there, there's definitely plenty of negative response to it as well, but I have this, I have this theory that, um, you know, the term cringe, uh, it, it's a very popular term right now in social media because uh, people, every time somebody sees something or there's a section of society or a number of people who somehow have grown up where they, whenever they see something uh, honest or um, self-deprecating or, uh, you know, somebody putting their own depression on screen or um, earnestness, it, it, instead of it being interpreted as that it's, it's interpreted as performative and then they call it cringe. So there's a section of people who saw the inside special who watched it and thought he was just being performative with his depression and with the emotion in it and call it cringe because, Oh, he's just doing this for the camera or whatever, because people have this cynical sort of uh, not, not everybody, but there's a section of people that have this cynical sort of filter that they watch everything through. And if something is, um, not done ironically and is done in a genuine kind of way, it's must, it must have been done performatively as opposed to actually from an honest place. And I, mean, I mean, that's just also, I mean, for me, the whole thing is stupid because it's like and anything done in front of a camera is performative. Oh, yeah. You know? sure. whether, whether, whether you're being 
genuine or not, you're still being performed. You're still no actively aware that a camera is on unless you're not. And then that's a totally different thing anyway, but who gives a fuck? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's just one of those things. It's like, if it, if it touches you, you know, and and it is one of those things where it's just like, you know, even things that like, like dip into melodrama, I'm like, so what? Like if it, if it affects me and sometimes melodrama, I hate. And sometimes it, it hits me in the right spot. And it's like, you know, something, if something touches you, it doesn't matter. So those are, I think it's just like, like you said, it's like, those are people that are just dead inside and don't, and are scared of their own feelings. Or it's a, I'm not going to say a generational thing, but it's a section of a generational thing where they're not necessarily dead inside, but they've just been conditioned to filter everything through this lens of everybody's doing it for the grab. So why, why should I care? <laughs> Hashtag cringe. Yeah. As they're hashtagging this, it's yeah, like, yeah, exactly. oh, just doing a special for the likes. Don't forget to subscribe and like my exactly. Like, it's, a, it's, it's, like, a, it's an Ouroboros, it's the snake feeding on itself. Ugh, gross, Whatever. which is actually a lot of the themes of uh, Southland Tales. You know, the, the, this idea of um, performative activism, and uh, um, you know, like the there's that the riot scene toward the end where, where you know, the 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 gun, Christopher Lambert's gun truck flips over and, and yeah. just people just randomly grabbing guns so they could fire the police. Um, and obviously there's social unrest that would cause this clash because they're living in a dystopian state. But uh, the one moment that really gets to me in that is where um, the private, the guy that Justin Timberlake uh, was doing the drug deal with earlier on, he's just sort of sitting there looking dazed and a random guy runs up and hands an automatic weapon to him. And it's just like, oh, okay, I'm doing this now. You know, it's like, it's, it, you know, nobody really knows what they're fighting for. They're just fighting. They're, they're just all kind of grab, try, grab a piece, grab their, even the neo-Marxists. Like when they, ultimately their goal is, oh, we got a million bucks, hooray, as opposed to actually making any kind of societal change. And I, and I think the movie's incredibly cynical on that level. Um, yeah. It's it's very virile even like, you know, a little bit of Robocop, a little bit of... You, know, well, you mentioned the Robocop, but then also when you mentioned the sneaking itself, I couldn't help it like suddenly the image of that like animated commercial for the car fucking another car. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, what the fuck? And then I love that moment. Like every now and then the movie is very, is self-aware. And then mm-hmm. when it cuts out to, you know, whatever, wherever they are, that uh, meeting room. And one guy just like has an aside and he's like, did I just see a car fucking another car? Yeah. It's like, good. We're, you know what kind of movie you're in right now for this. Well, that that's the, um, the Senator character. The, the, he, he's the audience proxy, I think, because yeah. He's also the guy during the dance sequel sequence who's like at the end who's like, "Is this going to turn into like an orgy or something? What is this shit?" Yeah, like he he's he has he's aware. Yeah, he's he's completely aware of like how absurd everything is, right? Um, He also turns out to be a fan of Krista now too. In that one scene where they're all they're all confronting each other at the at the house and stuff like that, he's actually got her CD and sang her lyrics and shit. I don't know. It's just layers of, of, of absurdity, but I like how every single character gets a moment to, I don't know, stand out, I think. Like, there's not really very many throwaway roles in this movie um, overall. Everybody's got something to do. Um, less so in the theatrical version, because they cut a lot of that down. But um, but it's always interesting. Like we said, it's like they, this, this film is just stacked full of, like, great fucking actors and like small bit you know will sasso and just yeah. like the, the list goes on and on and on but it's like and everyone pretty much everyone gets like a great moment and everyone gets to do and it's not just like oh let's stunt cast the fuck out of every role big or small and you blink and you miss them i mean you get some of that is happening with you know certain people like ei ross sitting on toilets but yeah. It, it, it's few and far between like everyone, everyone stands out in a way you're like, that's so refreshing to see them that way. Um, so for me, it's like, I walk away from this going, do I get most of what's going on? No. Do I care? No. It's like, was I entertained for that two hours and 40 minutes enough? Like at one point my son came down and he's like, what are you watching? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> And then I read him, I, th- I think, do I still have it pulled up? I read him what IMDb has for its uh, in, in introduction. Oh, just, yeah, from the, uh, this movie is about this. It's, yeah. it's, it's amazing. Uh, 
During a three-day heat wave just before a huge 4th of July celebration, an action star stricken with amnesia meets up with a porn star who's developing her own reality TV project and a policeman who holds the key to a vast conspiracy. <laughs> okay. I read that to my son and he was like, I'm sorry, what? He's like, where? He's like, that's, he's like Dad, that's a lot going on. They need to streamline that. And I was like, good, good job saying go to bed now. You can give me script notes in the morning. That's but uh, It's also a 4th of July movie, which is funny because that was like, two days ago yeah we're watching this timely but you you, you read that and i was like okay yeah i mean that how all, all, all those yeah. things are true but yeah. also doesn't tell me anything. <laughs> did you feel the running time of this because i mean like this is the second time i've watched the con cut this year and uh i didn't it doesn't feel like it's two hours and 40 minutes long it feels it, short for a movie that doesn't really have what i would call a strong plot uh it 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 just it should not feel as short as it does you know it does kind of chug along because you're just kind of watching it going what you're just waiting for the next weird thing to happen uh, (laughs) and going along with it so like i said it's always entertaining it's not one of those movies that just meanders on and on you're like i don't know what's happening and i'm getting frustrated like i was never really frustrated with the movie just because i was so entertained by it um so yeah i i don't think it feels like it's two hours and 40 minutes long at all i thought i was pretty entertained again is it a movie i i ever like feel the need to revisit probably not um but i'm really glad i did watch it because it is one of those things that i think that you know you meet another person who's seen especially this cut of the film and then yeah. you can just have those moments where it's just like, did you see that beat with, uh, I'm just trying to look at my notes, see if anything else I haven't mentioned yet. Uh, just anything. It's all of it is so bonkers. Well, just, you know what I liked a lot? And it's a practical effect that I hadn't seen since the early 80s. Uh, cloud tanks. So all the, all the, the, um, the smoke and the, the moving um, clouds and stuff that caught that did all the chapter titles and, and came out, came out. Okay. That's all done in cloud tanks, which are these massive tanks where they actually create clouds in water, which they used, they did um, in uh, Michael Mann's the keep. Um, and uh, that's how they did all the sky stuff and ghostbusters. Uh, okay. And sky stuff and poltergeist. They stopped doing cloud tanks like in like the eighties. And this was a movie made in like 2005, 2006, where these were specifically built for transition shots. And and I I really appreciate somebody taking an old sort of idea because it's such a cool look and bringing it back to something modern Ah, and not not going, oh, let's do it digitally. I'm sure we can create the clouds in, in Blender or something. So let's just, they actually created the tanks, which is great. That's awesome. Or they found one that was still kicking around. Yeah, something like that. I mean, it's a it's a process. I'm sure they could have dug up an effects person to, to know how to build one. You know. Yeah. It's, it's just do you do you offhand know the budget of this movie? I don't offhand, but I'm sure it could be looked up. Uh, yeah, it feels high. Like it, it feels high-ish. It feels like it's at least in the 40s. It probably is. I'm 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 assuming. Ben, like we could look at it on IMDb, but those budgets are rarely ever accurate. Anyway. No. Like, so it'll probably say like a hundred million or something, but it's probably in the 40 range. Um, yeah. I, I mean, even cause this is Buffy would have just ended 2002, 2003. So Sarah Michelle Geller would still would have been a, 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 a known quantity, but nobody, none of these actors are doing this movie for the paycheck. They're doing no, it to work, so. to work. They're doing it to work with him and yeah. to do something. Probably, cool so they probably would have done like schedule after, like I bet you because of like how big the cast is and how many people. I bet you everyone's doing this movie for Schedule F. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't look at the credits to see if any of them got EP credits, and so if there's any back end for any of them. But I imagine they're all doing it just to do a cool, unique project because yeah. they all make you know. There's the SNL actors; they're all making fine money. And Geller's mm-hmm. coming off a series, and The Rock is The Rock, and it's like they're fine. These yep. people eat. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, thank you for joining me on on this uh, this journey of this movie. This is definitely one I wished I could have sat down and watched it with somebody while uh, yeah, while yeah, I, like in person. Yeah, because yeah, it's one of those movies you just want to turn and be like, 
does that does that just happen? Is that a thing? <laughs> what is happening? Um, would have been very, very enjoyable. But uh, mm-hmm. but I think sooner rather than later, we're probably getting closer to being able to potentially do that again now that the world is slowly shifting back, hopefully, to the way things were. Yeah, we've got the uh, brave new future coming up, whatever that ends up being. The new, the new normal? Yeah, the new normal. Well, for North America and Western society, uh, I mean, this pandemic is going to keep going for a while yet uh, in other places in the world and may bounce back to us. We don't know. So whatever comes in the future, we'll see. It'll, it'll, it will be uh, more futuristic than scientists are predicting or scientists have predicted. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a line from the movie. I didn't just say something stupid. Off there, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, well, any final thoughts? Uh, I mean, I've now seen this three times. I don't see myself watching it again anytime soon, but uh, I'm glad to have it in my collection. And uh, I think it is a fascinating film. Um, and it's ad- especially for anybody who likes outsider cinema and weird stuff, you know, <laughs> a long list of directors who are just trying to do their own thing and put their own fingerprint on something. It's worth putting the time in uh, to watch the con cut um, yeah. or either cut, but I would definitely say the con cut's the way to go. Yeah, and you can get that. Um, again, another little shout out to Arrow. Arrow has a, a Blu-ray that has a con cut, and if you're in Canada, you can get it through Unobstructed View. But uh, otherwise, you rent the con cut on VOD as well. I think ah. it, it is available on VOD. There you go. Yeah, that'd be the probably one of the, the more cost efficient ways to uh, to pick it up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, man. This is fun. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for joining us for Southland Tales. Black Hole Films is a proud member of the That Shelf Podcast Network. You can listen to other episodes of our show and other That Shelf podcasts on thatshelf.com. Please subscribe, leave comments, spread the word, do all the things that let others know you like the show and how they can check it out. You can find me on Twitter, at Lon Jeremy, and go to Facebook and join the group Black Hole Films. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby.